welcome everybody in this morning. I don't see any visitors. I don't think I've met you if you are visiting with us yet, but uh, I'm glad everyone's here this morning. I want to get in there and we're excited to, to celebrate the, the baby shower luncheon, of course, for uh, Hayes and Amelia. And I also want to remind everybody tonight, uh, tonight we'll be hearing from David Nance. Uh, if you have not met David or if you don't know David, David is, I would say, probably one of the foremost uh, Church of Christ missionaries in India. And so he's going to be coming to tell us about uh, his work there and sort of give us uh, just an update and some bring us a lesson tonight. So if you can, come back. Kind of a unique opportunity here for Mr. David Nance. So on Sunday mornings for about a month now, we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And when we first, when we first began this, we, we took a week just to study Jesus, and specifically Jesus as portrayed in the Gospel of Matthew, and how he was very concerned with the kingdom of heaven. Matthew makes sure his readers understand that Jesus did not come to just with this idea out of nowhere, but that he came as a critical part of God's plan, a plan that was formed long ago, a plan that was established and prophesied by the very word of God for thousands of years. And it's a plan that finally reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. And we see in our passage this week, in our text, that Jesus himself makes this very same claim that the word of God is fulfilled in him. And Jesus begins his sermon by, by pronouncing blessings, which we said were akin to, to telling people what made life good. That he had redefined what it meant to be happy, to have purpose, to, for life to be fun, for life to be enjoyable, to be full of meaning. Even saying that the true meaning is found in persecution, if it is persecution for, for the sake of Jesus. And just as he redefined what it means for life on earth to be truly good, he is about to redefine for us what it means to be truly righteous. And he tells his followers that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Which is two ways of letting us know that if we are to follow him, we are joining him in, in a mission. In a mission of righteousness, in a mission of fulfillment. And this mission did not originate with Jesus himself, but it actually originated with God the Father, God the creator of the heavens and earth. The same God who gave the law to Moses, the same God who chose and anointed King David as, as the man after his own heart, the passage says. The God who, according to that passage we read in Hebrews, spoke to the prophets, to our ancestors, and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus tells the Jewish audience that's in front of him that, that the God of their forefathers, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, he once spoke through the prophets, but he now speaks through his son. Which is a very radical claim, if we think about it. It might not seem all that radical to you and I, because more than likely, through the son is, is the only way you and I have ever encountered the word of God. Whether in Matthew or Malachi or Genesis or Galatians, we, we have probably only ever read the Bible story through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel. Which is fine. In fact, it's, it's more than fine, it's, as we'll study in a moment. It's a, it's a very appropriate way of reading the Bible. But we've always read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, but we haven't seen it the way Jesus saw it, or his apostles saw it. But we see it through this lens of Jesus because the New Testament writers tell us that, that that really was the only way to read the Bible after Jesus came. Hebrews said he once spoke through the prophets, but now speaks through his son. Peter in 2 Peter 1.19 said, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter says, We, we ourselves heard his voice. 
speaking of Jesus, he says, We heard his voice on the mountain when he was transfigured. On Solomon's portico in Acts 3, Peter says, The God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Peter says, His servant who we have faith in his name. The apostles spoke of Jesus as the, the next step in God's plan, as the, the logical conclusion and, and the realization in the flesh of the Word of God, because this is how Jesus actually spoke of Himself. We'll continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to... Fulfill them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. One of my goals as a minister here is that no matter how many classes we have or how many teachers we have or how many different things we offer, that well, one of my goals is for us to be a church that studies the whole Bible. And I think one of the biggest things Christians get wrong today is, is we treat our Bible like it starts at Matthew. We miss out on a huge chunk of God's Word. That's why our class on Sunday mornings has been understanding the Bible in the Old Testament. Because so often Christians, Christians today, we kind of just pretend the Bible starts at Matthew. By number of books, the Old Testament has 39, New Testament has 27. So it, it seems like roughly 60-40. That you have, not quite half, the Old Testament might have a little bit more. It seems about 60-40 if you're just counting the books. I looked at the page numbers in my Bible as I was preparing this lesson. My Bible has about a thousand pages, a little over a thousand pages. The New Testament starts after 800 and something, which means by volume, over 80% of our Bible is the Old Testament. 80%. That means if you took a test on the whole Bible, if you took a test on the whole Bible and you knew nothing about the New Testament, and say the questions were balanced evenly and all that, and you knew nothing about the New Testament, you can get a B on the test, 80%. I would wager most Christians, if they only know one half of the Bible, they only know the New Testament. Which means, again, if we're sticking with our test illustration here, if you only know the New Testament, you're about halfway to an F, 20%. 20 20%. 80% of our Bible is the Old Testament, and so many Christians act like it doesn't even exist. So when we get to this verse... Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. That is huge. That is groundbreaking to most Christians today, I would say. It is, it is radical because so many view that, that the Bible absolutely started with Jesus. And, we, and sometimes they, they have this flawed view that well, the, old, the New Testament just kind of renders the Old Testament useless. That it, well, it doesn't carry authority, it doesn't matter, it's not relevant. And so we read a verse like this. When Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them, and we say, Amen. Jesus does not abolish the law and the prophets, and that is true. But don't overlook the second half of what he is saying. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. He's reminding us that, that reading and studying the Old Testament is important, that it, he's not being doing away with, he's not destroying it, it's not going anywhere. But what he's really saying is actually not just that he didn't abolish it, but he says he came to fulfill their purpose. We studied the verses on being salt and light. We said Jesus calls his followers to be co-workers in his kingdom. 
to, to join him in carrying out his mission. Jesus says, oh, oh, by the way, uh, this mission isn't just my mission, it's God's mission. And he says it's written about in your own Bible, in your own scriptures. Consider that before Jesus, the Jews had the prophets, they had the law, they had Isaiah, they had Ezekiel. They had what they called the Torah, which was Genesis through Deuteronomy. But they viewed these writings as being about the past, about past events. And they were sure, they were sure that they, they, they kind of stayed in the past. That, well, sure, they might have some impact on our life. I mean, they, they certainly revered them as holy writings, but they viewed them in a past event. But Jesus says it's also future-looking. Because he says all the law and the prophets, all that has been written, has been looking forward to what he is doing right there in Matthew 5. He said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Which brings us to the question we've probably asked about a dozen times already in our sermon series, and that is, so what on earth does that mean? What does it mean? that you, What is he getting at when he says he fulfills the law and the prophets? I think this is confusing because there's two terms in this one verse that we can easily misunderstand, that we can easily get confused about. Number one is that term prophecy. That term prophecy. When we, when we use the word prophecy today, we often think of future telling. We think of those guys who were looking at the Mayan calendars and the stars and all that. If you remember 2012, they said, oh, the world's going to end. They were prophesying, quote-unquote, that the world was going to end. They were predicting that all things would be brought to an end. You might be old enough to remember Y2K. December 31st, 1999 was going to be the last day any of us experienced. So if you're over the age of 24, consider your entire life a miracle. It all should have been. They would prophesy or predict the end of the world. So when we when we think when we even hear the word prophecy, we think of a crazy people, but we think of future telling. And so, at least in a biblical context, sometimes we still often think of the Bible as prophecy is future telling. And the problem with that definition is, well, uh, it's not. Not always. Sometimes it is. Sometimes prophecy is future-telling. In fact, Matthew's used it four times already in his gospel this very way. You may remember that passage we looked at a few weeks ago when he says that so this may, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, so that this might be fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah spoke of something that happened in the past. He, he spoke of something that would happen in the future. And when Jesus came, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He did what it said it would do. But what about the rest of Isaiah? What about all those verses that aren't predicting anything? What about all those verses that, that don't have to do with Jesus? There's about a dozen verses in Isaiah alone that are messianic prophecies. What about the other thousand verses? What does it mean to fulfill all, all of that? Well, for starters, Jesus said it looked like him. That, that, that fulfilling all of the prophets, the, the purpose of the prophets coming to fruition looked like what he was doing. And he says, not just the, the parts of the prophecy that are predictive, not just the parts that I'm going to do this, like saying he'd be called a Nazarene or, or born a virgin or that he'd be rejected in his hometown, but Jesus says all of the prophet would be fulfilled in what he was doing in his ministry right now. He says in 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not one, not one jot or tittle will pass. 
He says the meaning of these words, the meaning of what it means to be filled. He says this, this will come to light. This will happen in his ministry and what he is doing. He says, not only did I not come to abolish the law, but the, understand the law is not going anywhere. The law will not pass away. Understand that, that what Jesus was doing was the very reason the law and the prophets were written. Jesus is telling his disciples, who you remember, they were Jews. He's telling his disciples, I want you to go back and read the scriptures again. And don't just read them like they're... Their history reports or military reports that, oh, David did this and the ark was captured and on the eighth day it, it came back. But no, Jesus is saying, I, I want you to go back and read them with a particular ending in mind. And I want you to read them with, with the ending in mind that is what I'm doing right now. You may have a movie or a good book series like this that you can read or, or watch in this way, that, that once you've read it or once you've seen it you, and you kind of know where it's going, you know where the ending is, you, you start seeing all the little things along the way. You start seeing all the little hints, all the little clues, all the, the foreshadowing. Ah, I think I know where that's going. Ah, I know what they're getting at. Oh, okay, I see how this connects to here. And it didn't seem that important the first time you read it because you didn't know where it was going. But on the second time through, they just jump off the page. They jump off the screen. You're like, oh, I, I get how this is, how it fits together. You, you understand how the story ends. And Jesus is calling his audience to read the law and the prophets with the understanding that they know how the story ends. He's telling them to read them knowing that their story ends in Jesus. He called his followers to, to read the Word of God differently. To read it differently. As we'll see when he begins talking about anger and, and lust and divorce. When you read the Word of God as Jesus read it, you live differently. You, you live differently than if you read it the way the Pharisees read it. Which is why Jesus is in so much conflict with them here. Because the Pharisees certainly read and understood the law differently than Jesus. When Luke recounts the beginning of Jesus' ministry after he is tempted in the desert in Luke 4, Matthew 4, 17, it says the promise of Isaiah was fulfilled, but, but Luke actually includes this detail that, that Jesus read from the scroll. It says Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah that this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I want you to imagine that scene. That Jesus is speaking to this room, the synagogue, the room of a, a religious officials, very devout Jews, and he says, not only did I come to fulfill the law and the prophets, but by the way, this prophecy that we're reading, it's about me. This, this page in your holy books, this, this passage of your holy writing, it's, it's actually being fulfilled in this exact moment through me. That's crazy. Luke 4.22 says the, the crowds, the audience in the synagogue, that they, they marveled at him. That they recognized he, he spoke not as the teachers, but he spoke as one with authority. But by the time he's done teaching, the religious officials in verse 28, it says they were filled with wrath. That they drove him out of the synagogue, they drove him out of town, and they sought to throw him off a cliff. Jesus did not see eye to eye with the Pharisees and the scribes of his time. He had great respect for the Word of God, but they often accused him of actually having a very low view of the Word of God. They had accused him of having a low view of Scripture, of not taking the law, of not taking the Word seriously enough. We see this accusation follows Jesus, his whole ministry, that the, the Pharisees are constantly telling Jesus, he's, he's not respecting the Sabbath. He's not respecting their traditions. He's not respecting the law. 
But Jesus had great respect for the law. He had great respect. He had deep reverence for the Word of God. Notice he says in verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've already talked about the significance about being first or being greatest in the kingdom. How that's a standard or a compliment that any follower of Jesus should aspire to. That Jesus says, whoever does these commandments, they are the greatest. He says, to relax them is to be the least. So despite what the Pharisees accused him of, Jesus actually had great respect for the Scriptures. He had no respect for how the Pharisees interpreted them. He had no regard for how they lived out the law. He had no respect for how they enforced the law. Jesus loved the Word. And so he hated how the Pharisees misused it. He hated how they abused the law. And so he tells his followers, if you want to be righteous, it need, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He makes sure his followers know that the Pharisees and the scribes, their lifestyle is actually not the, the high standard that they would like you to believe. The Word is the high standard of righteousness. But he says, no, their righteousness is actually a very cheap righteousness. It's a very low bar. And so he tells his followers, if you want to be truly righteous, you have to learn a kind of righteousness far greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to study this more next week and the week after as we, we go through each of these passages over the next several verses when Jesus deals with anger and lust and divorce and, and swearing and retaliation. But we see that the Pharisees were very concerned with external righteousness. They were very concerned with how things looked how things appeared. They were concerned with things like image and reputation. They were concerned with what other men thought of them, so they emphasized a version of the law or an interpretation of the law that was concerned only with one's outside behavior. But they had no interest in changing what was on the inside. And so now we begin getting into the heart of the sermon, and that is the part of the sermon that concerns itself with the heart. Jesus says this is the purpose that he is fulfilling in the Law and the Prophets. This, this is the real purpose of all that has been written up to this point. It's to understand that the Law is not just a set of rules for the sake of having rules. They were commands that actually were supposed to bring about righteousness. True righteousness. Holiness. Purity. Closeness with God. See, the Pharisees were concerned with looking righteous. Jesus was concerned with being righteous. To read the law and the prophets, as he calls them, with this idea of fulfillment or this, this ending in mind is, is to understand how every book in every chapter in the Old Testament, how to view all of that in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Old Testament, you can read about the Levites... You can read about the roles of the priests, the importance of the, the holiness code and the sacrifices and how they ought to be conducted and the, the specifics of how the altar ought to look and when you do the sacrifices and when you can and the order that it must go in. But you can read and what you can see is that what we really need is a perfect 
priest. What we really need is a perfect sacrifice that doesn't just roll back sin, that we don't have to do again next year, that we don't have to continually give every, every week, but a, a perfect sacrifice. You can read about the prophets in the Old Testament. The men who spoke on behalf of God, who preached the word of God. And, and so often we see that the prophets aren't heard, they're not obeyed, they're not followed, their, their message gets understood. Or in the case of the Pharisees, not just misunderstood, but intentionally misused. And so you can see the need for a, a prophet that who can speak fully for God. A prophet who can interpret the word with perfect theological interpretation. A prophet who can speak with full knowledge of what it is that God wants to say to us. The Old Testament, you can read about what a society who fully obeys God is like. Where the king upheld the, the statues and the laws of God, where the king sought God, where the king was even called a man after God's own heart. You can see what a joy it is for the king to wield great power and influence over people so that nearly everyone in the land is prosperous when the king follows God. But you can also read what happens when the power goes to the king's head and the king leads to sin. And when you read that, you might think of the need for a perfect king, a sinless king. A king who will, who will not lead us into downfall. A king who has a kingdom that will not pass away. A king who could perhaps himself actually be sinless. When Jesus calls his audience to read the law and the prophets differently, he's saying to read them with the end in mind. To understand that all that was written about was fulfilled in him. He called them to understand what this fulfillment meant. To understand that external righteousness is not enough. To be a follower of Jesus means understanding the importance of inward holiness, of inward righteousness, of a heart that follows God. As we walk through each of these topics over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what we mean when we say inward righteousness, what exactly we're talking about, what, what exactly that looks like. But for now, I'll give you a, an illustration or a small example. There was a mother at the church in the worship service with her young daughter. And the daughter was standing up on the pew, feet on the pew, kind of standing up, looking around. The mother would look over and she'd say, honey, sit down. The daughter would sit down and five seconds would pass. And the daughter would stand back up on the pew and be kind of jumping up and down, looking around. The mother would kind of lean over and be like, honey, sit down. And so the daughter would sit down. And then a few more minutes would go by and she'd stand back up. And finally the mother reaches over and she puts her hand on the shoulder and gently just pushes the girl back down into the seat. Says, sit down. The daughter looks back at her mother and she scrunches up her face and she goes, I'm still standing in my head. If you've ever been a parent of a young child, you know that struggle. But you probably also know that that attitude is not unique to young children, it is not exclusive to young children. The Pharisees and the scribes, they obeyed the law. They followed the law, and in fact, they were so focused on how to just so ever exactly parse what God said that they stopped caring about being the kind of people God wants them to be. Jesus' point is that when you follow the law while refusing to change who you actually are, while refusing to change your heart, your thoughts, your attitude on the inside, guess what? You're actually not following the law. We wind towards the end of our lesson this morning. I, I want to bring this kind of around to today. 
Because I think as Christians, we can become guilty of focusing on external righteousness. We can make those same mistakes the Pharisees did of focusing too much on external righteousness rather than internal. And I think we're guilty of this normally in one of two ways. Number one is what I've often called checklist Christianity. It's when we're simply going through the motions. That sure, we're here in the church building, we're taking communion, we're looking down during the prayer, we're humming our way songs, but we have no interest in being part of a spiritual community. We see ourselves as people who don't need a spiritual family. And so we stay on the fringe, we stay disconnected. And I would say this is one of the de- greatest dangers of, of legalism in the church today, is when we reduce the church to a sum of its parts. That we can say, well, to be in the church, all you have to do is is you got to pray, you need to give, you need to sing, you need to take communion. But as long as you've done those things, you can say you've gone to church. You, you can say, no, that you weren't guilty of Hebrews 10.25, that I wasn't forsaking the assembly. I showed up. But what about 1 Corinthians 14.15? Worshiping in spirit or with the mind and the spirit. Or what about Matthew 22.37, about loving God with all your heart and all your soul? Or even that old standby passage from Acts 2, 42 through 47. It doesn't say the disciples showed up. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It didn't just say that they broke bread, but it says they broke bread and they received it with with glad and generous hearts. Praising God is more than just saying words in a tune. I think we are often guilty of seeing the church as a checklist instead of a community. We reduce doing church to the few things you need to do to say, well, I've, I've done church according to the scriptures. We've prayed, we've sang a song, we've, we've had some teaching. We've really done all that's necessary rather than embracing the view of community that the Bible teaches. I think the second way that we're guilty of this is on the individual level. I want to be careful when I say this, but, but I've seen several churches, teachers, whatever, so strongly teach, so strongly emphasize a steps or process-based view of salvation that what we, what we do is we condition Christians that I need only be concerned with what is necessary for salvation. I need only be concerned with the absolute minimum rather than teaching Christians to consider what the most is that we could do to please God. When we teach church membership, we often do so by the minimums. We say, well, have you heard and repented, confessed, and been baptized? Okay, you know what? You're a member of church. That's all I need from you. You're good. You just keep showing up, and we won't bother with you again. But you know what's interesting is when we teach things like how to study for a test, when we teach things like how to succeed in school or how to work any job with a semblance of work ethic, we always use phrases like, do your best. Try your hardest. Give it your all. Be be the absolute best version of you you can possibly be. I'm sure we all heard variations of that same motivational thing on every classroom in school. You know, I remember the one time in high school that I had the wise idea. I told my parents when my report cards came in that I really wasn't concerned about my grade in the science class because all I needed to pass the class was a 70, and I had a 72. I didn't need to be concerned about it. They about strung me up by my pants. My mom was a teacher in the school, and more importantly, they knew I could do better. And my daddy said, look, if 
If you gave it your all, you tried your hardest, you study your butt off, and you still get a 72, then you know what? You get a 72. But don't aim for a 72. That's ridiculous. I feel like so often we, we teach Christians to aim for the absolute minimum when it comes to the relationship with Christ. I would rather teach somebody, I would rather teach somebody to observe all all that He has commanded us, as He says in Matthew 28, 20. Because I know if I successfully teach that, I will have taught someone to repent. I will have taught someone to confess. I will have taught someone to be baptized. But I will also have taught them that it doesn't stop there. It begins there. Jesus says to go out and make disciples. And if we are truly raising up disciples, we will teach them salvation. I assure you, if you teach somebody enough to make them truly a disciple, you will teach salvation. But if you aim to only teach salvation, you will never make disciples. If you teach someone to be a disciple, you will absolutely get them through the process of salvation. But if we only teach salvation, we will never make somebody a disciple. We often teach only the minimum rather than raising up devoted disciples. As a result, I think we, we, what we have, what we grow is a community of people who are concerned with external righteousness. People who are concerned with viewing the church as a checklist. People who are concerned with, well, let's just, as long as we just kind of do the minimum the Bible asks of us, we don't really need to do anything else. And what's interesting is when I read this passage, those are exactly the kind of people that Jesus condemns. Those are exactly the kind of people that Jesus calls to do better, to do more. He calls us to be disciples, to follow Him. It says, whoever follows these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the greatest. We need to do better than external righteousness. If you're with us this morning and you're a member of the church and you, and you think maybe this applies to you. If, we, if we've been reading and you see Jesus' commands or his sort of rants against the Pharisees and you see yourself in some of these texts, if you're someone who wants to know what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ, if the church can do anything for you, if you have any need, won't you come at this time while we stand and while we sing?